Let's take a reading from Titus chapter 2. We'll read the whole chapter just to see the flow of Paul's intention at this point in his letter to Titus. As we've said many times, chapters and verses were added to the scripture text much later. But you can work out from paragraphs um, what somebody is majoring on. And those that put the chapters and verses in place for chapter 2 could see that there was a unity of thought. An instruction that Paul was giving to Titus uh, in this section. So let's read all of chapter 2 together. But our focus verses for today are verses 9 and 10. Two verses only. Titus chapter 2 verse 1. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. So those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. To try to please them, not to talk back to them. And not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. So that in every way, they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God has appeared and offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. And to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. The week after next, we'll move into verses 11 onwards and we'll see that verses 11 um, through to 14 really are the foundation for everything that's built on top of that. So uh, Paul, in his instruction to Titus to pass on to the people in the churches in Crete, is saying this is how you're to live, but it's all built on what we read in verses 11 through 14. I'm not going to stray into that topic um, for the person who's speaking next time, but it's just to see the flow of Paul's argument that he's instructing on the basis of the grace of God that has appeared. It's because of that that then we're to leave the things that are associated with the world and instead to pursue the good things of God. Titus uh, chapter Two verse one. I just want to point this one out. In the NIV it says, You whoever must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. The word for teach there is not the usual word for teach in the original language in the Greek. It's a word that means proclaim. There's just a little thing here. Here was Paul instructing Titus, you proclaim this to the churches that are in Crete. Of course, we teach in many ways. Teaching can be when something is proclaimed or when you sit down with somebody and you show them something and it might be in personal uh, 
discourse that you have with someone. But here, Paul has in mind that the churches are going to be gathered and Titus is going to have his opportunity to speak to the churches and he's going to proclaim this sound doctrine. What is in accord with sound doctrine? That which needs to be heard. There's an importance in this, that the church is a group of people who are to come together and there's a proclamation of the gospel. There's a proclamation of the teaching of God about what the gospel does in the lives of believers and transforms their living and it points out and helps them to see this is what life should look like and Paul's giving this instruction to Titus to pass on through proclamation to others so this whole little section as has been said already by previous speakers over previous weeks is that there's a consistency in a true and genuine believer's life consistency in their stated and declared beliefs matching the behavior that they live in everyday words and in actions. I want us to focus then on verses 9 and 10, which is about slaves. Teach slaves to be subject to the masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. We've broken this section of uh, Titus down into little Uh, bite-sized chunks because we don't want to race over matters that are important here and here's an instruction that was given to slaves to be obedient to masters or to be subject to their masters and to live in a way that was appropriate given the doctrine that they had received and absorbed for themselves and that doctrine of the grace of God that transforms the life of sinners to become holy ones saints it's something they've received and it's to be seen in the very social structures that they were part of in their day. Paul was addressing the social structures that existed then. He's talking to slaves, and these were slaves, people who had little or no rights themselves. In the scriptures, slavery is mentioned. It's never condoned and it's never condemned. Um, But we do get a little hint that the human trafficking that occurred in association with slavery is condemned. If you want to take a note of this, 1 Timothy 1 verse 10 and Revelation 18 and 13, in a list of sins that would characterize people who are persistent in their sin and refuse the grace of God. One of the um, sins that's mentioned there is slave trading. So that's, that is condemned, the kidnap and Uh, removal of people to bring them to another place but the service associated in slavery is never either condoned or condemned it would see it was seen from the scriptures we're going to draw some lessons out of this as to how this might apply to us in our circumstances and we can apply this to and the title for our subject is really um, glorifying God in the workplace so when we serve somebody else Um, how do these things apply so this was written to the context that was there and then but there are principles that would come out for us we're not to confuse the slavery that's mentioned here either with the colonial slavery which is horrific in the 15th through the 19th century and the British Empire was um, had a major role in that neither are we to think about it in terms of the slavery that's 20th century, early to mid 20th century of um, 
the United States. It's not that type of slavery that's in mind. We need to really go back to the, the time and place 2,000 years ago and see what was the situation in the Roman Empire back then. Slaves were considered property under Roman law and they had no legal personhood. A major source of the slaves were usually from the conquered nations and that occurred 100 to 200 years before when this letter was written, uh, when it was still the Roman Republic and it was expanding and they were oppressing peoples and exp expanding the borders and they would overrun cities and so on. And they would then put the peoples into servitude, into slavery. Then they would take people and they would transport them across uh, the Roman Empire as they felt was appropriate. There's something additional to this though that is very important to see. And this is seen in, in Jewish culture and is mentioned in the scriptures, but it also featured in Roman culture, is that if some people became so impoverished or had no means of credit in their system anymore, they would actually sell themselves as a slave to a well-to-do household, thereby gaining some sort of credit rating to allow them to continue and their, fun their family to continue to function. Um, but also that would sometimes increase their social standing. Everybody wants to climb up the ladder. So if you're part of this household and that's where you would operate, there would be a master of the house and his direct descendants would be part of the household, but you would also be considered part of that household. You'd work within that household under his authority. Then you've climbed up a few rungs in the social strata of society if you're associated with that person. So you can see that there were... Um, sometimes voluntary um, commitments to move into slavery uh, for personal benefit. I mentioned that they had no legal personhood. Now we're, we're given some insights in some of the names in scripture. And this is a fascinating little, little thing. Acts 20 verse 4 mentions Secundus of Thessalonica. Romans 16 verse 22 mentions Tertius. And Romans 16 verse 24 mentions Quartus. Second, third and fourth. That's what their names mean. Secundus, second. Tertius, third. Quartus, fourth. Those were the names that were given to slaves in people's households. So they had no personhood. Whatever the name was before, maybe that name just got lost. And in terms of priority in the household structure you would have people that were known as uh, Secundus or Quartus. Primus, he was number one. We don't get a Primus mentioned in scripture. Some estimates say that 35 to 40%, at the time this letter was written, 35 to 40% of the population of Italy were slaves. So you can see how vital slavery was in the economic system. It wasn't the same across the whole empire, but they do estimate somewhere between 10 and 15% across the empire of the population would have been in slavery. So it's a major um, element of the financial system that was associated with the Roman Empire at this time. I just mentioned there's no primus mentioned in scripture. Maybe because God wants us to think that there really is only one prime servant that we're supposed to look at. Turn with me just quickly to Philippians chapter 2. 
Philippians chapter 2. And what was probably a, an early song of the churches of God. Philippians 2 verse 6. Speaking of the Lord Jesus. Christ Jesus at the end of verse 5. It says in verse 6. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross and so on the servant word that's mentioned there in verse 7 if you're reading the NIV is the same word slave that's used in Titus chapter 2 and verse 9 it's a slave the Lord Jesus himself became a slave voluntarily in the purposes of God so that he might serve the purposes of God when the eternal son took on human flesh in the mystery of the incarnation the son of God and the son of man two natures in one person and he walks through this life and his prime purpose as the prime servant the servant that's marked out by God in prophecy in Isaiah 42 and onwards the servant whom he delights in whom he upholds is none other than the Lord Jesus this one gives himself to be a slave the Lord Jesus had come to fulfill the greatest of all purposes and to serve the greatest of all works and uh, to give expression to what it means to serve in this world John 4 verse 34 if you remember when the disciples returned and Jesus had had his conversation with the woman at the well and they said are you going to have something to eat now Lord Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He knew he'd come with the purpose of being a slave. We might not like that language that he was a slave. Slave to whom? To his father. Yes, but it was a willing service. Just like those who would give themselves into this. He knew that he was the only one who could give himself to this service. Matthew 20 and verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but... To serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It would cost him everything. This slavery. To the will of God. He would give his life. And as he begins his prayer in John 17. In verse 4. He says I've glorified you on the earth. As he prays to his father. By accomplishing the work you've given me to do. It wasn't entirely completed. But all the things that he had been. Given to do day by day. As God's slave. Servant. Willingly having given himself to this sort of service where he would bring benefit to others and glory to the master. He had done it all day by day to bring glory to God. And then he would step forward to the cross and would declare then it was finished. The work of salvation was done. It was in the upper room. We remember that they're all sitting around the table and none of them would dare to get up and take the bowl and wash each other's feet it was the menial task of the slave the lord gets up takes off his outer garment wraps himself with a towel and gets down and washes all of their feet silence in the room you can imagine as that happens apart from when peter speaks up what an example the lord jesus is of one who gives himself to this sort of life and this sort of service but back to our focus text what 
Why did Paul need to give this instruction, given the historical situation that I've tried to outline? I should say as well that slaves weren't often doing menial tasks. Um, just with the social structures and the financial system that persisted in the Roman Empire, you could have very highly skilled people um, performing their duties on behalf of the household. So you would have physicians and um, accountants, for example, who would be part of the, the slavery system, providing a very valuable and necessary service in the household. So with that in mind, then, why does Paul here and also in his other letters give instructions to slaves? One, because there were probably many of them, given the numbers we've thought about that were present in population. And he needed to clarify something for them. Because the gospel removed all of the distinctions in society that humanity has forced upon it. Colossians 3.11, just listen to this text where Paul writes about a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. So all of the distinctions that are seen in humanity are, are gone when it comes to the matter of salvation. We all stand as individuals before a holy God. And nothing of our social standing or our, our employment or whatever status we have counts for anything before God. We're all the same. Galatians 3 verse 28. Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. So any distinctions that we see, which do exist in society, they are removed when it comes to us in our fundamental relationship with God. And just another one, 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13. Paul wrote to the church of God in Corinth and said, By one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. The work of God is the same in each person because it's the same spirit who brings about the new birth and brings us into the new life. So you can maybe see then that these slaves who were in the household and maybe their masters were believers as well because if you can imagine a believer being the master of the house, he comes to faith in the Lord Jesus, he would share that with his household. And other people in the household would become believers as well. Imagine if you're a slave and you understand that you all stand before God in absolute equality. Before God, there are no distinctions. Suddenly, you're working for this man and in God's estimation, you, you have the same standing. Maybe there was the risk of slaves then not respecting the social conventions that were in place. And... Paul needed to maybe correct that a little bit for them. Societal structures, as we've seen when we worked our way through Romans as well, Paul says that societal structures are in place and, and that they're in place and made such by God, so they're to be honoured. Of course, they're to be just and we're to push against injustice. And, of course, that's an element. But it would be, you would imagine in a household where the master of the household has become a believer that suddenly his whole attitude to how he deals with people in his household would change and there wouldn't be any oppression or 
or maltreatment. You would, have, you would like to think that. Uh, but a slave who becomes a believer as well in that household is then thinking, well, maybe I should be getting a little bit more out of the master here. But the way the system was working, they were to honour the societal systems and give respect where it was due. I think what we're seeing here is that there was an expected behaviour for a slave in a household, that they would be back chatters, that they wouldn't always do what they were told. Um, they probably received corporal punishment for that, I would imagine as well. But also maybe just to keep themselves uh, in, in a bit of cash, they would also be involved in some petty thefts. I think we can assume that from historical accounts, but also what Paul implies here in terms of the alternative behaviour that is expected of them. The indwelling spirit comes in and he transforms that attitude where it's all about me, 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 where now Paul is saying, you're going to happily give yourself to honouring your master. And masters you're to happily honour and give dignity to those that are slaves in your household. You maintain the, the financial and the social structure, but you give each other the respect that is due to both as brothers and sisters in Christ. That was the difference. Slave and a master, both believers in the Lord Jesus are now brothers. Amazing transformation comes about in society. And of course, there's going to come a society in God's future purposes where uh, these social and societal conventions that we have are going to be overruled by the great king of peace who will say this is the structure and this is how it should work. But we're racing ahead. Notice... Um, Paul says be subject to their masters in everything there's two ways we can come at this either these were masters who were not believers and here's the instruction to the slaves you, you, do, you do everything for the glory of God but don't go against your conscience in the matter of things where God has very clearly said in his word you're not to do that so I can remember in my um, secular work life uh, being told by the chairman of the company at the time, well, this is how he said it. He says, you, you Protestants are, um, he was a Catholic uh, Frenchman. He says, you, you Protestants are too honest. He says, you need to lie. And we were going to a meeting uh, and he wanted me to lie. And I, I just said, that's not happening. Um, so that's just one little um, awkward example. But there comes a point at which obedience or respect to a master only goes so far we, we honor god in everything not our masters but i wonder if the in everything here alternatively could be understood as well if the master is a believer and the slave is a believer then the master shouldn't be asking you to do anything that would go against god's ways so you just get on and do it and do it for the glory of god to be pleasing and not argumentative not talking back not back chatting don't be stealing petty theft taking a, a look at a, a little bit of something and putting it in your pocket maybe you're entrusted with the cash and you slip a penny in your whatever it is don't, don't do that remember what Christ has done for you Paul is saying you, you are taken care of in Christ be fully trustworthy that's what it comes down to it's being somebody that can be trusted in the job to which they've been brought into so there were Three do's and two don'ts. Be subject, be pleasing, be fully trustworthy. Don't back chat and don't steal. 
Now, we can see how those would transition across to us uh, in the workplace today, don't we? We don't have time to go into the other places where Paul gives the same instructions. Um, In Ephesians, he tells them, slaves to be obedient as slaves of Christ. So you're ultimately working always with Christ as your master and you do it from the heart. He has a, a word for masters in Ephesians 6 as well. He says, remember that you both have a master who is in heaven. So you might be the master of this one, but you've got a master to answer to who is in heaven. So in the workplace, if you have a position of responsibility over others, remember that you're answerable always to God. And if you have superiors above you, you still are answerable to God in all things. In Colossians chapter 3, and verse 22, Paul encourages the slaves there to, to do their service out of sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. It's always looking to the Lord. In 1 Timothy 6, and verses 1 and 2, He says, regard your masters with all honour so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. So do it so that nobody can point and say, I thought you were a Christian. My brother-in-law tells a story of when he used a word which he thinks is not particularly um, an unacceptable word to use in a work setting. And somebody came up to him afterwards and said, I can't believe you used that word. I thought you were a Christian sort of thing. And uh, he felt bad about it and still does. Um, but it just shows how one little word can, can bring uh, an element of criticism into something. I just want to say something very quickly about the sanctity of work. Thinking about our relationship, and we're going to finish up about thinking about maybe the various tasks and work that we would have today. Remember these slaves were very often forced servitude. If we put ourselves, and we, we have the choice today how we work. Uh, and the the employers that we we choose. It's all about a two-way thing, isn't it? If this was expected of those who had it forced on them, what about us who have the choice as to who we work for? These principles should come through to us as well. Back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, the creation mandate comes to humanity. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. You go over to chapter 2 and verse 15, and God takes the man he has created and puts him in the garden that he's, he's made special to cultivate it and to tend it. And the word cultivate is to work it. And I think that answers to what was said in Genesis chapter 1. This subduing and ruling over the creation on God's behalf is humanity's task. And placed in the garden, you work it. Work was there from the very beginning. And it was a glorious thing. Because God is the God who works. And humanity in their sinless condition as it was then would have had such fulfillment in it. But we know that you get to Genesis 3 and after the fall, the curse comes on the ground. And God says to Adam, because you've sinned, cursed is the ground because of you and with hard labor, you leap from it. And by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the dust. So work as a consequence of the fall has become a difficult thing, a hard thing, hard thing in terms of the workload itself, but also in terms of the relationships we have with others. But praise God that that's all going to be redeemed and brought back to its perfection. I believe that when the new heavens and the new earth come, we're not going to be sitting around twiddling our thumbs. There's going to be the fulfillment of work on behalf of God as it was originally intended back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. 
want to finish with this. The way we conduct ourselves within the framework of the societal structures of our day will make the gospel look good. It's all about showing that there is a transformed life here and challenging the things that are wrong, but being respectful when doing that. NIV says, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. It's God our Saviour. It's about him. So in the very actions and things that we say in our response to those who might have some authority over us in a workplace, how we respond in that makes the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. New American Standard says this, that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in every respect. And the word adorn, which is behind um, the word make attractive that's there in the NIV, is really to take jewels and to line them up in such a way that there's a beauty with an arrangement of jewels. That's it. You take all these elements of your life and you bring it all together. And it's a beautiful thing, not because of you, but it's beautiful because people can see in you the Lord Jesus Christ whom you serve. It's the overriding principle that here is being spoken of. The word is cosmeo, which is linked to the word cosmos, and cosmos means ordered. So take that away and think that through. Every element of life we bring together points to the orderliness of what God has done for us. So how do we cope whenever the workload is unmanageable, when the drudgery seems unending, when the exhaustion is almost disabling? Maybe we just come back time and time again to the ultimate example of the Lord Jesus, prepared to lay down his life for the glory of God. That was all for our good. He's done it for us. The end of Colossians 3, in the little section related to instructions for slaves, Paul says this, and it's a verse that we often take out of its context, but it was given to people in the workplace. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord and not for people. Do it for the Lord. Well, I'm not working. I'm a student. Give yourself to your work as best you can, diligent. In terms of your application and also your behaviour in class, do it to the Lord. What about if we're unemployed and we really would like work? What's the work involved then? The work is trying to seek the work, isn't it? And we do that for the glory of the Lord as well. What about the retired? There's still much to do, isn't there? Life and service for the Lord doesn't stop. So we continue heartily to serve the Lord and we do it as for the Lord. What about raising children and managing the household? Same thing applies. It's work that is done for the service of the Lord. And what about those of us that are self-employed? where we're our own masters and we make our decisions. Of course then, we conduct our work and any of our relationships with other people with such integrity at all times so that there will be no cause for criticism, knowing that we have one who is the Lord, our master, and we do it for his glory and not for our own gain. Let's have a prayer.